You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Foundation Radio. Today's interview is with Charles Shan Sarone, a world-famous photographer, got a chance to go out and take a look at North Korea, which is absolutely mind-boggling. I've loved Shan's story since I heard it for the first time, and I think you will too. So enjoy today's episode of Foundation Radio with Charles Shan Sarone. love to talk about as a photographer myself where you started with your photography career what was what was the spark that made you look at it and say yeah I want to do this for the rest of my life sure yeah so I I really don't know if there was one moment that was a spark of oh this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life right but I know that um, I've always been a creative person artistically inclined and you know growing up I was always the one getting handed the family camera to just mm kind of do whatever with <laughs> right um, right and you know throughout high school that kind of led to having a dslr and being able to you know do band photos for friends or you know dumb little things here and there and i wasn't so sure that i wanted to really hey man like 15 years ago i did not have much goals in my life i was like <laughs> what am i gonna do i you know, na- like now i feel like an obsessive career-oriented person that right like now you need to go sleep. do this. I yeah. have to be doing things. But at that point in my life, I didn't really, I didn't have a lot of goals. Okay. And it was one of those things I kind of fell into of, well, I don't hate doing this. I'm not bad at this. Right, um, right. Maybe I should pursue this more. And that ended up having me move to Philadelphia. Okay. I ended up going to the uh, photo program at Drexel. Okay. And really just started falling in love with the fact that I could actually make money at at doing this mm-hmm. and that it led me to different opportunities and different environments and new people and new things. And I think at the end of the day, that's what I just love about working in this field is yep. it's never the same thing every day. It's exactly. something new every time I've yep. done everything from like a quilting convention to, <laughs> <laughs> to North Korea. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's, uh, it is fascinating how different, like wildly different the jobs can be. I mean, I know I've done everything from cover the Foo Fighters in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. to a fucking golf tournament in Baltimore. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it's just everything really is. It's almost like fly by the seat of your pants. You know, you have the foundations of what you do, but everything is just so wildly different. And I think that's the most, for me, that's the most fascinating part of, of being a photographer. Yeah. What absolutely. was, what was your favorite medium to you? Cause I'm a film guy. I'm a film guy. I'm still always yeah. going to be a film guy forever. I think, but what was your, what's been like your favorite medium working in so far? You know, I think to this day, um, currently my favorite medium would have to be, uh, digital cinema. Okay. Video. Okay. Um, 
just being being able to transcend still imagery to to video in something that I was never formally trained in. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you're good is, at it. We're actually watching some of your footage <laughs> here right now from Iraq, which we'll get to. But yeah. I mean, this is just fucking this is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> and you've never had any formal training in this. No, it was kind of like fly wow. by the seat of my pants of, you know, <laughs> right. I started doing a lot of, you know, photo work that then the clients would be like, hey, can you also do video for this? Right. And I'd be like, well, maybe. sure. And, <laughs> you know, now it's been maybe about seven years since I started getting hired for that kind of stuff. And now we're operating a full production company that does start to finish, you know, pre-production to post. And we, we have a red in-house and we do whatever whatever we need. Wow. And I think that's been my favorite medium lately to really work with. And that's what's gotten me some of my most recent travel work. But when I think about what I really love to do, I don't think anything compares to shooting large format okay. film, which I miss doing so much just, <laughs> just out of having the time for it because yeah. it's such a laborious thing. But, uh, you know, I remember starting on 35, yep. moving up to 120 mm -hmm. and doing medium format and finding how much more latitude there was with that. And then stepping behind a four by five and you kind of enter this, you put the dark cloth over your head and you right. entered a whole new world. It's and just such a different experience. I mean, I've only done it a handful of times, but it's just like, holy shit, this, yeah. is, this is wild. Yeah. And just seeing what you could capture when you really slowed down to yeah. such an extent. Um, but then after that, it was like, okay, this four by five is for little babies because once you <laughs> stepped into an eight by 10, it's just kind of the first time you get under the dark cloth, yeah. you're like, you're speechless and you, you <laughs> I, I, I can't even see it all at right. once. And you find yourself just scanning the environment and looking at things. And um, it's hard to go back from, from that because taking of that just, step back. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is very immersive. And um, one of my major projects that got me a lot of commercial work was doing a personal project at the Philly shipyard here okay. where I spent about a year, year and a half just at the yard three, four times a week, constantly photographing it and trying to learn how to capture an environment that large and right. really just falling in love with the industrial side of things. But yeah. um, that whole project ended up being a really strange mix of digital DSLRs mm -hmm. and 8 by 10 film. <laughs> which I'm sure it's cool, though. think could really live side by side. Right, right. But I mean, they're it, just so dynamically different. So dynamically yeah. different, but... It, it was like being able to capture certain things with an eight by 10 that just that really captured the scale or the immersion. And then some of those shots that really digital only allows you to do because yeah. it's, yeah, this is really fucking dark or <laughs> yeah. I can't see anything. Holy shit, I got to dump my ISO. Yeah. You know, maybe I really shouldn't try and carry this eight by 10 camera up to the top <laughs> of that crane wearing a harness. I don't even know where the tripod will go. Oh shit. What am I going to do um, up here? Yeah. Yeah. So stuff like that. But, um, I'm I'm convinced though, and I, I know we've talked about this before, but I'm convinced that anyone who goes into photography, anyone who really wants to make it like a gig, yeah, should have to do like maybe a year or two just shooting film, learning the mechanics of using a 35 millimeter film, you know, going in and developing your own film mm. on your own because that's how I started. I mean, I started in high school. I had a a fucking I don't even remember what it was. It was some kind of Canon camera that my dad had. And I just shot in the Ilford that my yeah. photography teacher had. And we had to go into the dark room, learn the chemicals, learn how to use it, learn how to develop the film. And it made me so much more aware when I shoot digitally. And I mm -hmm. think one of the things that I like so much about the film camera is that I'm limited in what I can shoot. 
So yeah. I take you, my you are time. restricted. I am literally restricted to 36 images, maybe 37 if I'm lucky, if you get an extra, you know, roll or two on there. But um, I'm convinced that that is the best way for me. That was the best way that I learned how to use my digital because now I know how to use that and, and really kind of fine tune instead of taking 600 shots and then being like, oh, well, there's one or two here that are yeah. great. Literally taking my time and having to do all that. So do you feel this? Do you feel the same way? I, I absolutely think so, um, especially when there's like a financial cost involved. Yes. Which, uh, you know, it's not just, oh, this is all the film I have on me. This is all I can yep. do. It's, <laughs> boys, starting to cost a lot of money. Yep. You know, it, yeah. it, it wasn't always the same cost risk when it was, you know, that was the only way to that was take the only photos. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's probably why I don't shoot 8x10 as much anymore <laughs> is so by the time I have man. bought the film, especially if you go color with it. Oh, my um, God, yeah. Yeah, if you're shooting color, by the time you have bought the film, mm-hmm. processed the film, proof scanned it, and then said, "Okay, I really, I this. really like this one, and I'm gonna now have it drum scanned." You're looking at about like eighty bucks per photo, right? And that's right. like horrifying. But, even uh, even still, right now, I mean, I'm I have in my bag, I have my Canon AE1, which I take with me pretty much everywhere, and I have a roll mm-hmm. of Ektar Canon or a Kodak Ektar 100 uh, in the roll, and that shit's like eight or nine bucks a roll. And then it's, I don't know, probably how much do they charge an extent to have it developed? I think it's like maybe 11 or $12 to develop it. So you're yeah. already, you know, and then it's, it's just at like, least six, yeah. depending where you go. Oh, that's, yeah. I mean, I know there's some places in Philly that are a little cheaper, but I take it to a spot on X and um, that develops it right there within an hour. But it's still, I mean, and then they have to scan it. So it ends up being, you know, 20 some dollars. I mean, it's just expensive. You have your digital rig, you spend kind of that one time purchase that investment and then I have my photos right away but I just have always been fascinated with the idea of film and and you know I I think I I find myself to be much more creative using that camera than it would be it slows you down it makes you more precise and um you know I I think before I had really explored film my first experiences were just on like a shitty little Nikon D40X (laughs) right um Something little, something that you could, yeah, something yeah, that wasn't just, the super fancy thing, just something that you could explore and, and do yeah, with it. But yeah, but you do start out just doing a lot of spray and pray. And right. And eventually, like, finding some good shots, say, oh, maybe I am okay at this. <laughs> right, uh, right, but, right. you know, once once I did start shooting film and really spent time with that, mm-hmm. and then going back to digital afterwards, I do find myself a lot slower. And if I am in a spray and pray scenario... I find myself more honed into what I hope to accomplish for that. Right, and right. that lets you really take advantage of the digital technology that allows you to get shots you can't get any other way. Exactly, right. But it's all about what goes into it, and you're not just kind of just firing away. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about why we're really here instead of listening to me ramble on about fucking film for 20 minutes. Uh, we're here so to talk cool, about... cool, man. It is, oh, film. bro, it's so awesome. You should film. Man, you should really do it, dog. All right, but uh, so we're here to talk about North Korea. So let's start at the very top. How did this even come to be? When did this project start? Sure. So I love to travel. I've gotten to travel a lot, and as as I have done that, it's kind of just pushed me a little bit more and more to... I want to see the weird stuff. Right. I, I don't. I don't want to go local. I don't want to go easy. I want to see really things that other people don't get to see in the world. So, North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, is uh, has always kind of been on my bucket list. Okay. And um, it's always the thing that I thought, you know, ah, well, you know what? If I save up enough money, eventually I'll find a way to make it happen. Yep. Something, something, something. But. Um, Strangely enough, this opportunity came up 
in probably like mid 2014, late 2014. Okay. Even early 2015. Somewhere inside of that. It, range it there, was yeah. easily a year out before we went. Um, where some people I had networked in with at the Center of Aviation Photography in London, uh, some fantastic people that are truly at the top of their field in, mm-hmm. in aviation photography. Um, I love to do it. I've made it a niche, but this is what these people breathe day in and day, out. Yeah. Day, in, day out. Um, and I, I love that I still get to work with them on stuff every now and then. But they found out that North Korea was putting on their first military air show. Wow. Um, in Wonsan, their second largest city, their largest port city, and they wanted to invite Western journalists to cover this. This this wasn't something that was just, oh, open tourism to the public. Right, right. Um, they wanted to put on this show of force, um, show off their their capability their, and their culture in this region, but um, they they wanted certain Western journalists to come see this and document it alongside their citizens being there to, to, see, to see the might. So they pitched, okay, we're, we're going to get about 10 people together. Right. And we're going to try and go to this. And a whole year went by of just email chains and weird paperwork, sketchy bank wires, visa applications. Yeah, let's, all. how does that, so how does, how do you even get a visa to get into North Korea? I mean, is that even possible? It is, but not through conventional channels because okay. you technically don't get it through your passport. Right, because they're, uh, they're, I mean, they're on that, like that yeah, terror or we, whatever. Yeah, the we do not have diplomatic shit. relations with them, at least still officially, even right. though, you know, things have been weird this year. But, I think um, weird is the understatement of the millennium, but go on. Yep. Really? Is. Seriously. <laughs> like, Seriously. So bizarre. Yeah. But, um, you know, if, if you don't have diplomatic relations, you cannot stamp alter do anything to a passport um it is both a crime for that country and And for for you you. personally because the government owns your passport you don't own your passport i see okay Um, so there's like an entire (laughs) there's like an entire back channel method that you have to go it is is a back channel method and you have to know people that are connected through groups that have access to the north korean state department through nations that do have open channels that that work you in so so more like china you'd have to essentially go through yes. which is what basically we were working with people through china to north korea through london okay at the center of aviation photography where they were helping coordinate everything that happened and needed to happen mm-hmm. until we finally did get our visas which okay. you get a visa booklet it is its own little thing. Wow. You actually don't even get to keep it. I have photos of it. I was just going to say, yeah, did you even get to hold on to that? Yeah. No. They took uh, it back We received it in Beijing. Okay. And we had a whole big sit-down meeting in Beijing with people from the fixing group and from North Korea that kind of laid out, like, what we were in for, mm. which was, you know, a really, not a scary thing, but, like, a stern speech that was, here's how this is going to roll. Here's right. how this is going to work. You get your warning. You, yeah. you get your warning that is, in the most simplest terms, please obey our culture, obey our rules, respect respect our culture. Right. As long as you do that, which, you know, is a side way to say, hey, don't fuck around. Right. Don't, right. don't steal right. things off the wall. Don't do don't, dumb shit. Don't be subversive. Um, as long as you do that, we will show you the best we have to offer because we want you to see our country. Okay. 
and I really did take that to heart, especially after the trip that they meant that. Right. I mean, it seems like it's you're you're now. How many photographers went? You were the only American. That I got was in, the right? only American, and actually, you know, there there were a few other groups that managed to get in with their own press, but. Right. To my knowledge, still to this day, I am the only American that went on this entire air show. Crazy. Which, again, I don't know outside of maybe a CIA statistic. Right, right. Am I the only American that has flown with and inside the North Korean Air Force? That is amazing. How does I mean? Is that that's got to be a cherry in your cap, right? I mean, that's that's pretty fucking cool. It is something I like. <laughs> I like nod my head to is like, oh yeah, that is cool. But yeah. it doesn't like make me famous or anything. No, no, I'm but not, I mean, it's like, something that. <laughs> but it's I mean, as far as bucket list, where you're just like, oh yeah, I want to go to North Korea. Yeah, I mean, you that's know, the I, biggest fucking. Bucket I always list said that you I wanted to possibly do. I wanted yeah. to go. Maybe I'll make it to the Airing Festival one year. That right. would be cool when they actually do open their borders a little bit. But yeah, that's what I kind of ended up being. Is if not the only one of the only Americans to ever fly with, with the American. North Korean Air Force. So you get to, you get everything situated. It's now 2016. Take me through how you end up in North Korea, like the actual physical process of ending up there. So I'll roll that back just like maybe one month in that as things get closer and closer and we keep keep working with it, we're still like not sure it's real. We're not sure it's going to happen. Right. And even as we we start traveling, it's still like, huh, what's going to happen? And I end up in London meeting up with the uh, center and then we fly through to Finland to Beijing. We have a couple days in Beijing just Mm -hmm. waiting for things to process. Right. And it's not real until we are at the Beijing airport. We are checked in and everything and we get to the gate and it's kind of like, hey, if you're going to back out, now's the time to back out because you enter that queue right there and you're boarding the plane and that's that. So right now Shan's got some footage up from... Being in North Korea, so right here it looks like you're on some North Korean airspace, is that right? Yeah, this was basically right as we had landed first time coming into the Kalma airport in uh, Wonsan. And, and now uh, you have a GoPro, which you probably, I mean, it's okay to say this, but you probably should have been recording that, right? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I did a couple like somewhat dicey things with the GoPro for a while, but right. I... Uh, I got a little bit more uh, comfortable with it as it became kind of clear that most people over there just did not know it was a camera. <laughs> they just weren't familiar with exactly yeah, what it like was. I, I remember as soon as we had gone through customs, we were waiting for like everything to clear out. So we maybe just sat in the airport for like one or two hours. Right. And bless these lovely people. They had a bar in the airport. So we were just there. <laughs> just enjoying that. Yeah, yeah. just enjoying that. Um fantastic local beer i will actually say they are they know what they're doing that's a good thing that's um, a good thing this is so crazy man look at us no guys. but we, we were sitting shit. there and the, and the gopro was on the table there and the uh the waitress is like pointing at it like huh <laughs> and we're like camera it's a camera and they're like just didn't understand no concept of what it was right once they finally did get that it was a camera, they were much less interested. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, I mean, like, I guess my question is, what kind of technology do they actually have inside of North Korea? Like, what what exactly? I mean, obviously, I, I would imagine they have cameras, but is it is it very, like, rudimentary or, like, what, what? So it's absolutely a weird mixed bag. Like, on one front, what you're seeing right now is the military side of the air show. Like, right. that's, that is a MiG-21, a Russian, a Soviet-era aircraft that... Shit. You know, is in museums in most country in the world. The only other air force in the world that operates that jet is Syria. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> says a lot there. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, yeah. 
tells you where they're at. So like everything we shot there, especially the Air Force, which was really the point of the trip. Right. Um, it's ancient. It's ancient technology. They they maintain it well. They gave, keep a fresh coat of paint and everything. But it's 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 relics. It's all relics. But at the same time, they have smartphones. See that blows like, my mind. There, I don't think people realize that there is a certain amount of freedom and communication inside the country. It's just local. You don't you don't take it outside the country. You can't reach outside the country with it. But I remember some really really humanizing moments with our uh, handlers and minders that we'd be sitting at something at a cultural event at the end of the day. It's, you know, it's 11 o'clock. We've been up shooting since four in the morning. Mm-hmm. They've had to watch us the entire time working with us. They are a human. They are tired. Yeah. This is their job. They are super friendly, but they want to go home. Yeah. And watching uh, one of our handlers just like, not, not Tetris, but like playing some kind of like bubble burster game on yeah. their cell phone. And I look over and just kind of like, Hey man, <laughs> and he just like gives me this look of like, yeah, I want to go to bed. <laughs> I think there's a natural propensity for people to sort of demonize or dehumanize the actual citizens of North Korea oh, in absolutely. the same way that we would dehumanize, you know, Iraqi citizens or Afghani citizens during the wars. Um, it becomes, you know, the the running narrative becomes this this idea, this story that Kim Jong Un is everyone. Or mm-hmm. their their ideas and their ideologies are everyone, and realistically, they're they're. I mean, there's people. I'm looking at footage right now. There's people walking, riding bikes, and the woman at the the bar was packing your stuff the same way. It, it's just like these are normal, regular human beings who just happen to live under some horrible regime, you know. And, it, yeah. and it, it's fascinating. I, a- I love absolutely. the idea of it. I love. I, it's it's very, it's very interesting. I, it reminds me a lot of maybe what Cuba would be like back during when you know Castro's mm-hmm. heavy hand was happening. It, I I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of this, but this is. Like what kind of I guess the color schemes too. Like I'm I'm seeing a lot of like blues and pastels yeah, and colors. Of, yeah, that was that was maybe a, uh one of the craziest things over there was that again, those like predetermined views of what you have is like, oh, it's just gonna be dark and cold and, and gray. Bad Everybody and wears gray. the same clothing. Yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. there's a woman wearing a red shirt that just yeah, walked by. Especially, you know, when you think about communism and you right. think about Soviet architecture and brutalism and everything, but over there, yes, you have the Soviet brutalism that is impacted everywhere, but it's like they right. took that and then just plastered it with color. Just yeah. so much stuff. And that was like a really exciting thing for me to photograph over there, like my architectural interiors or my exteriors or the street life stuff. It was like, holy shit. This, <laughs> like I came back looking through my images like, wow. Look at all the bright popping it's rich colors. It's not what I thought yeah. it was going to be, but it like, you match that with a very rigid, rigid culture. And I think maybe that's something that scares a bit of Americans outside right. of the pure politics of it all is it's not the type of culture they're used to and the organization they're used to. And right. it is just, it doesn't dehumanize them. It doesn't make them anything. They're just, they're just different people. And they are, they have structure right. ingrained from, from such a young age that, this is fascinating. Watching uh, a crowd director basically like yell into a microphone, hey, the event's over, it's time to go, and watch everyone like get up in, un- like thousands of people get up in unison and then just walk quietly in an orderly fashion out of the space, no chaos, no nothing. Everyone waited their turn and it was just simple. That's There were a lot of like incidents like that where 
They yeah. just that's just how it that's just how how it operates. That's just what they do. It's almost like it's it sounds like like a perfect kindergarten class where everyone just gets up and moves. Now this is crazy right here. It's almost like it's a giant circular. I don't want to say line dance, but it's a it's a very it, it, choreographed. It is a, yeah, this line dance. is yeah. about eight thousand people. Holy dancing. shit! And uh, again, the the rich colors that I'm looking at the 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 clothing. traditional garb. Yeah, I mean it's it. it's reds and yellows, greens. I mean, there's all kinds. And look at this guy trying his <laughs> Glenn, best. Glenn What's, Stanley. Yeah, he is doing his best here. And there's everyone, and that's what I mean. Like, look at them. They were laughing with him. It wasn't as if they're looking at this guy and being like, "Oh my god, he's." They're they were having a good time. So this is this is fascinating here. Yeah. This is. I'm sure. Surreal. It was like, you know, you get off the plane. It's like, oh my god, am I here? Is this right. it? What's happening? And you're always kind of like on edge that what's something what's, crazy is going to happen, right? Yeah, but it, it, crazy things would happen, but they weren't scary crazy. They were just surreal in a way of you. You keep passing it along. You're like a new experience that okay. I didn't think was possible. So like that thing happened on the last night of the air show. That big dance, um, right? And you could see some of the minders were kind of playing more into the the rhetoric that the party mm-hmm. wanted and everything. So some would say, you know, we pulled up to the city square, got out of the bus, and some minders are like, oh, yes, this is a normal night in Wonsan. This is just a regular occurrence. Everything's normal here. Right. And then the other the other guides that were... They don't have they don't have any bullshit. They're, they're there right. to do their job. They want to show you the best the country has to offer. They're still going to play by the rules, but they're like, yeah, they, they put this on for, for you, your delegation. They, they want you to see our culture. They want you to right. see this. But we get out of the bus and are just greeted by 8,000 people choreographed dancing in these circles with like the, the most precision and order that I had never seen in my life for this many people in such a casual setting. Right, it, right. It was, I mean, it's it, casual. You know, maybe it wasn't just yeah. an ordinary night, but it was still a very casual atmosphere of... These people weren't practicing a routine. They were just dancing. They were doing what they did. And then there was like another whole thousands of groups around them of just civilians watching and everything. And we were invited to just go in and dance with them, to go in and out with our cameras, to get up close, to get up there. So there was no restriction on anything you guys could film or anything you guys could look at, right? Okay. If if they if there were they weren't really enforced in a way. It was we were there as journalists. They wanted to show us things, and we had a lot more leeway within areas like we'd get brought to an area mm-hmm. and then say yeah okay go wild we're ready to go don't wow. you know run off 500,000 feet over there or something but right stay here but you can you 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 basically have carte blanche to do whatever you want yeah yeah, yeah. fascinating and then this must be from the actual air show itself yeah yeah the actual air show um <laughs> yeah this cuts just like all over the oh, place oh that's cool man now that's uh, i like this <laughs> shit though that's cool the cuisine like what was the food like so it was this interesting mixed bag of either the exact same thing for breakfast, lunch, dinner, didn't matter what it was. Oh, here's some jam and or, some mayonnaise. Or on this last night where there was a bit more of like a big feast sort of right. thing. Um, but like the, the regular food we would always have was always perfectly, perfectly good, perfectly fine. But it was always some kind of rice, some kind of bread. Some kind of egg, whether it was a hard-boiled egg or scrambled or whatever it was. Um, and then usually, like, rice a piece of chicken of some sort. Yeah, like, or, like, like you know, fried rice, mixed rice, vegetable rice, stuff like that. How was it, though? I mean, was it was it gnarly or was it, like, no, just it was something like you would Perfectly good. Eat? Interesting. 
Because oh, I, excuse I, me, I, I said chicken, fish. There's always, always like fish. some kind of fish because they're on the water. That's their economy Close for all of that. Yeah. They can't really do all, the, the agriculture scenes a bit different, but the fish right. is there. Well, I understand that the, the what the what the prevailing narrative here in, in the states is is that there's a there's a famine. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's literally the haves and the have-nots. So you hear about all of these people that are starving to death, and now I'm seeing this, and it's like, wow, that's that's interesting that there's all now. This could be all part of that show that they want you to see, but yeah. I, you know, I don't know what the what the day to day life would what, be like. So what what I would say to break that narrative, um, because you know, in a lot of cases, we were interacting with our guides and everyone else. We were definitely interacting with a privileged class that is very higher, well educated right. in English. They're able to talk to foreigners. Sometimes there's trips to Japan or something or China. Right. Um, but as far as the regular citizen, I think the amount of people that we saw, because for this okay. air show, they brought in delegations from all over the country, from Pyongyang, from rural areas, from, from everywhere. They mm -hmm. wanted their citizens to see this display of power and might. Mm hmm even though it's Soviet technology. Um, <laughs> it's like, all old, folks. It's all old. Yeah. Um, but they still wanted them to see this. And... Wow. This is so crazy. I don't want to get sidetracked, but that's right. an American helicopter. That's an American helicopter. That is a Hughes MD-50. And how the fuck is, did they get to North Korea? Uh, they managed to... Sm so they managed to smuggle in about 40 of them through international markets in Germany oh, I before see. they got caught and got cut off. Right, but the right. scary thing is that the MD-50 has a civilian and a military variant, right. and they are identical other than a couple little pods and extras. So if you take the civilian version, repaint it, add a rocket wing on, and do some stuff yourself, you've got a military helicopter Whoa. that is identical to also what South Korea uses. So for espionage and other things or whatever else, they can use kind of crazy. crazy. Yeah. Um, so now, but no, I'm just going to go back to the, the, yeah. the, the food thing. Um, a really interesting thing is that the famine narrative, there was famines in the nineties. And really you can blame that on the, um, the middle ruler there. Not Kim Il-sung, who founded the country, had amazing, you know, ideals that anyone in 2019 with their socialist narrative and right, whatever. Right, right. would be like, oh, that's so, so like, yeah, yeah, this is this is good for the people. We we want things. And he did a lot for infrastructure and all of that. Then Kim Jong-il came in and was a lot more fascist. More heavy-handed, um, right. Yeah, more heavy-handed and also took on infrastructure projects that were not good for the people. They right. were good for the, the narrative of, look at our might, we did this good thing. So right, the largest right. infrastructure project that has ever happened in, in North Korea was a, a dam. Excuse me that I don't remember which river this was on. It's okay. But it was a massive dam that really served no purpose other than electric generation. Okay. However, it starved like a humongous percentage of their actual irrigation for rice fields oh, and crops right. and everything. And, you know, you can never backpedal on this. Right, the, right. I mean, you kill it the, and it's The dead. Soviets, yeah. the Russians ingrained that very well in their doctrine, and that carries on here in, you know, their model of communism. You don't apologize for your mistakes. You just take it and go, right. Yeah. Sort of sounds like somebody we know right now. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but so so that that happened in the 90s. Right. That was really bad. There were famines. There was a lot of sanctions and uh, they they suffered. There were there were real problems, but they have come back from that in a lot of ways. And I think 
you know, even even Kim Jong Un takes a bit more of a um, progressive stance where he's done trying to antagonize America and people that can have sanctions on them. Right. They're more concerned with aggressing to their immediate neighbors of like South, South Korea, Korea and Japan. And you see that in their missile testing currently, like a couple weeks ago. Right. They where just recently did something. Yeah. They're, they're testing missiles and it's on our radar, but America doesn't play a lot of notice to it because it's no longer international. It's no longer ICBMs. It is short range, strictly dev- devastating right. technology, but short range things that its only purpose and intent would be hey, to attack their, their immediate neighbors. Right. They're, we, um, we're going to blow some shit up in Tokyo. And uh, yeah. So you see a lot of stuff like that where they're trying to limit international sanctions to do better for themselves, right. do better there. And that's smart in its own ways, and I don't think I can really comment more on the, the politics of it, but no. like people are doing okay in where they're at, especially because some of the aerial footage I was able to shoot. Right. Which, another thing was kind of debated if that was, we were really allowed to, or they just kind of didn't care and didn't stop us. Was, right. You know, we, yeah. we go up in their helicopters, their aircraft, as part of this air show, um, and we're, some people were told, oh, you can shoot out, do not shoot down. Okay. I was not stopped from hanging out the open window of the Mill 17 helicopter and shooting, and shooting right down. down to the ground and all these aerials and stuff. And the details and things that I saw was that most people have their own agriculture in their backyards. There's plenty of farming communities and stuff like that, but people survive because they're able to support themselves in a lot of ways. So it's amazing for that's, the food discussion. That's that's, <laughs> that's the whole that's the whole rant. There. That was that was super. Thank you for letting me watch that footage, yeah. man. That was that was pretty rad. Was there a time when you were in Beijing that you thought like this may not happen? Like they may pull the plug on this. Like was there was that something that you went into this with that idea? I think, I think by the time we were in Beijing, we were pretty certain it was going to be a thing. But again, like everything and every moment of this trip, the only word that comes to mind is just surreal. It was. Right. We're going to see what happens here. Mm-hmm. I assume we're getting on the plane, but who knows? This is so out of my day to day at this point. Right. I mean, this is like almost uh, it's uncharted waters. It's unprecedented. Yeah. Right. So everything but is we're, kind of we're, different. At, we're at the gate and it was kind of kind of funny in that you look out on the left. There is a giant, you know, Boeing 777 South Korean Air. Right. Big plane. Look to the right. A little Soviet Tupolev jetliner <laughs> from the fifties that is like a quarter of the size of what this for, South Korean yeah this yeah, Boeing with, plane with, with Air Cor Air Koiro the <laughs> national airline of North Korea and we say oh wow that is just a funny little scene and I guess we're doing this and we board the plane and they play the little safety video yep. and we're served this. Anyone that's ever been to the crew will tell you there is a weird cheeseburger that is served on Air Coiro <laughs> <laughs> on every Air Coiro flight. That is your in-flight meal. It's kind of like a White Castle burger. And it's but, that big. Yeah, yeah. But just like different. And it is just the, the thing that you're like, this? This is what they're serving? <laughs> okay. All right. I'm, I'm cool with it. But uh, a little, little knickknack. But, that's um, funny. So we fly in. Right. And we land and we get there and things just start moving. And right. Again, I was always like on edge that something was going to be weird, but people are people everywhere and it can't be, you know, a crazy fascist regime down on you at all times. At some point you got to sit down and breathe. And that's not to say that at any point it was like a crazy fascist regime, but like if you fear, if you fear that and you expect that and then you don't see it, it's just. 
just a day-to-day normal day. Yeah. So then tell me about how long were you there before the air show started? Was like how long was the the full trip itself? The full trip in country was about three and a half, four days in North Korea. So that doesn't sound like a lot of time, but when you're only when you are sleeping three hours a night and you are constantly being shuttled around to different things and different events and you're going it is just it is one big experience that at the end of it when i was flying back to beijing and everything i was just like dead yeah absolutely dead (laughs) now when you get there i imagine they go through everything you own are you allowed to take your laptop are you like what as far as like your memory cards and all the shit that you have to carry with you in order to store all this stuff what happens like what's the process there when you get to the airport so we were allowed to bring laptops and computers or a a laptop laptop, or a phone things like that they weren't banned Mm. we were told that you know as long as the radios stay off you keep all the antennas off and you're using for this you know we understand your journalists right that was okay um i still didn't bother some people did some people did but I think I just kind of went really ham on Amazon and uh, <laughs> not that I'm trying to plug any, I don't even want to say Amazon, uh, went really ham on buying like a shit ton of CF cards yeah. and everything and just said, you know what, I'll return them it. if I don't use them, but as long this, as you have a backup, is, yeah, right, this, this is how I'm going to do it. Now, I mean, so you were basically cut off from the outside world for three and a half days. You just shut your phone off and you're like, fuck it, I'm, I'm going to yeah, just I, follow I every, it, every I left it have. in Beijing. You left it in Beijing, so you had yeah. a you did now at the hotel. We, we paid or? like a locker service. I see. So okay. basically, like one person had an extra piece of luggage, so everyone that didn't right. want to bring certain things just, just piled it in, it in there. Smart. Stashed it in the airport. Smart. Said said leave it. Yeah. Um, was cut off except for one time when I was allowed to make a phone call out. Which so tell was me about that. Truly strange. Truly a strange <laughs> thing. Um. They would let you buy a SIM card okay, to use on a like a really simple burner phone. And if you bought minutes, you could place calls on it. Call out to the outside world. And yeah. I don't know whether it was to them like, ha ha, this is a funny perk we can get the people to pay for. Right. Um, because it was, I think, $20 for the SIM card and $10 a minute. Wow. So I kind of said, well, this is a once in a lifetime thing. And yeah. Dumped a hundred dollars on this and had myself like 10, 12 minutes of, uh, of time. And you know, you know, you're being listened to. It's, all. Yeah, I mean, it's being recorded. And but yeah. I was like, okay, who are the, who are the four or five people that I'm going to call and just freak <laughs> out and, um, just geek that you're yeah. inside this country. I yeah. called some of my best friends that like a couple Shit. didn't answer, but the few that did were like, hello, what is this like 30 digit <laughs> number that just called me? I'm like, hey, it's me. And they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> and like, I, I, I remember um, my one really close friend that I'm actually making the, the book with right now. Right. Um, <laughs> she was just trembling like she was like i don't know what i'm allowed to say right now but i'm glad you're not dead <laughs> so that, oh my that, God. that was really kind of a surreal thing i'm and sure i also i'm pretty sure i did that like four or five beers deep in my hotel nice. room at that point well you have to get some liquid courage before you just spend 100 bucks to make some phone calls yeah That's you know great. this is gonna make me sound like a, a raging alcoholic but um <laughs> i don't no judgment think here man there there was like an hour or two that went by that 
we didn't have like a beer of some kind or something just because every little cafe, everything at the air show, everything, it was just hospitality because they had, they have a lot of their local beer that comes in this, these, these green bottles that, um, I guess like translate what the name of was, but, uh, really, really good. I was going to say, yeah, North Korean beer is good. Yeah. It was like a, uh, it was a lager. Interesting. Um, interesting. It was like if Yingling didn't suck, Okay, I can feel you on that one. Yeah, because Yingling that, sucks. I'm not a I'm not I'm I'm a yards guy. I, I I've never yeah. liked Yingling. I've never enjoyed that beer. And I'm sorry for if you want to be a sponsor, but fuck it, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's it, Taylor's over here laughing. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I could I so it basically would taste like what I would imagine a good Yingling beer tasting like. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. That's pretty rad, man. I mm. would I would I think I would be in the same boat if I'm in such a again like I, it's I'm trying to sort of quantify this in my mind like mm-hmm. being inside of this country because realistically the only thing Americans know about it is what we read in the news and then what Trump tweets about you know mm-hmm. I mean that's that's really all we know about it yeah so what was the thing that struck you the most about being in North Korea what was the thing that stands out to you still to this day the most that was sort of the the capstone if you will that the you changed that changed your mind from all of the shit that you've kind of I don't want to say indoctrinated but like what yeah. what we're allowed to know about them no, so, I mean, I don't think I could pinpoint one thing, but I could pinpoint a couple, like, areas sure. that, really, that really changed it. And I also would say that, like, when I do talk about this, I notice some people, it would sound like, oh, he drank the Kool-Aid, he is indoctrinated. Um, right. It's the American that went to North Korea and just wants to say, they're great, don't, don't leave that. <laughs> and, but no, I mean, I'm not going to apologize or sugarcoat any of their past that there have been some horrible things that that went on that's not to be disputed but I think where they're going now what I saw was in the humanity of it and you know I think the best thing that anyone can ever do in their life is travel and see more parts of the world and it really shouldn't be a shocking idea to say people are people everywhere but, you know, with the rise of a lot of weird things in our own country here, yeah. it, I think some people can't see that. Yeah. They don't see that. They can't see past the front of their nose about it. Right. No. Um, so I'm I'm very privileged to be coming up on about 33 countries on my list right now. Jesus Christ. Man. And that's fucking brilliant. I love it. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it's <laughs> uh, amazing. No, it, I, I feel very privileged to be able to say that I've yeah. done that because it has changed me and it's given me an appreciation for things that a lot of people unfortunately we'll never see in their lifetime yeah and I mean, especially north korea but yeah, it, you know. especially i mean this this is the fringe of it right um but everywhere you go you know you go to europe or you go to iceland or you go to england it's like it's a america light it's yeah it's capitalism has gone across the world and people still speak a lot of english with a different accent but you're you're gonna get everything you're used to. Your phone still works. Your credit card still works. People get you. You're used to the system. Um, but people are still people there. Mm. People are still people when you go to a regime that is incredibly different. Right. Um, there is a absolute cult of personality around the um, the Kim family. Right. Their eternal president, uh, Kim Il-sung, and everything. Almost everyone wears a little pin on their their chest. About Kim Il-sung. It's either got um, one of the party flags or the faces of Kim Jong-il and uh, Kim Kim Il-sung 
Kim Jong-un has not been phased into all of the statues and right. merchandise yet. But it, se- it seems <laughs> but like it's, a- it's, 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 that's, that's yeah. what it is. But when I would, you know, ask, ask people whether it was civilians that we were, that we met at the air show and were able to talk to or our fixers or anybody, it was like, Hey, what's up with this? I see everyone wears it. And I think anyone would expect to hear a very regimented answer of, mm-hmm. Oh, this is the party. That's what it is. But the answer that I got was more like, oh, it's just it's just the culture. This is what we wear. And the way they described it, it was like the businessman in America wears a suit and a tie. I see. We wear this is this is like the normal thing in this situation. This right. is what we do. It is just just it, how we it, are. It wasn't oh obsessive dear leader. Yes, yes, yes. No, it was just, oh, this is this is the thing we wear. Mm-hmm. This is the normal thing. Um but I think what really resonated to me was that I was able to have honest conversations with people, um, even the fixers that are there to that tell you anything. Some now, when you say when you say fixer, that means somebody that's are, appointed. Actually, to you. no, that, that's the wrong terminology. There, minders, minders, the, the minders, and a minder um, would be somebody that came that's f- assigned to you from the North Korean government to yes. basically mind or watch over you, right? Yeah, in, in any other country, this would be just like a tour guide, except that it's a lot more. Strict and regimented, yeah. For yeah. lack of a better word, yeah. Yeah, for for lack of a better explanation, that's basically basically it. I got but, it. Okay. Um, some some of them were a lot more bold with their statements than okay. I expected. Some of them, when when we'd press a little bit more about the questions, like what do you think about the outside world? What do you think of your world here? Some of them, in amazingly articulated English, would be like. Yeah, uh, we want to see more of the world. I know our people want to see more of the world. And we want people to see us. Because if I could take anything away is that they are a very proud people. Not from a indoctrination of party and leadership, but they are a very proud people of their heritage and culture. Okay. Um, it, you definitely see that in South Korea as well, and just in as a cultural thing, but they they had so much pride in what they did have because I think when you are so isolated from the rest of the world, whether that's self-inflicted or sanctioned from the rest of the world, right? you are what built you. You are all you have. It is your people, your culture, your might, and they really are proud of themselves for what they have, especially as they've been able to grow. And right. I think going to this air show and them trying to show off the best of the best of the best that they had was their pride. You know, they may not, the civilians there may not know that these are Soviet aircraft that uh, should be in museums. Right. That are only going to be used this one time, and then that's pretty much (laughs) it. Yeah. Yeah, but then, uh, like, to them, this was, wow, we have this, we we have capability. We have might here. Um, We are so great. We are as great as the Americans, yeah. And also, you know, I think you read a lot of stories or historically, not, not just stories, it's facts of, you know, the Potemkin village kind of approach of fake vegetables and like the stores aren't real, whatever's right. not real. It seems that's phased out. It's more of what we have may be modest, but it is consistent and it is not of a lacking quality. I see. And instead of fake vegetables, it's like luxury goods on the high end. Like every now and then right. we would see a convenience store that we were allowed to go into or something and shop at. And it wasn't fake. It was, 
yeah, if you want Johnny Walker and Swiss chocolates, we have that for somewhat of an exorbitant price. Right. But, but it's here. But it is here. And you can enjoy it. Right. Yeah. Um, so that that was really interesting, I think, of what just kind of changed and humanized a lot of this for me was right. seeing the base amenities that seem to be rolled out across all people mm-hmm. and the willingness for transparency from a lot of people. Um, there was one civilian that I that I talked to. You could clearly tell who was a straight-up civilian or someone that was semi-party affiliated. Right, right. And yeah, one, no, one of the party-affiliated people I met with, and by party-affiliated, I mean they were a school teacher. Interesting. So and, what, what differentiates someone between a, a party-affiliated civilian and then just a regular, everyday It's It's generic. basically what role you play in in the entire culture and community. I see. And so it's almost like a there, caste it's, it's system like a, in a way, sort of. I guess, I, no, I don't, I don't know that I would view it for the caste system. Okay. It's, if you take communism at its core, it's a quality of all people. True. And it was fascinating to see that manifest itself over here in things like feminism. But, um, in, first, in, first, uh, female women fighter pilots. No shit. Renowned so in the country, so they're huge. They're huge on feminism over there. Is what essentially what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, wow. It, I mean, it, it, in, it, in, at least yeah. at least that is a push that they're they're trying for, and seeing some of that in action was Crazy. was really was really cool. That's so cool, man. Um, where was I going with that? Equality. Uh, yeah, the equality. We were talking about the, the party. The party. Yeah. So the party. Yeah. So you know, if you work in the schools, that is something that is government disseminated got it if you work in the military or other things like that is directly from the government which is the party the party is the government got it but if you're a farmer you're probably not in that same vein maybe the person that kind of manages 30 of the farm districts Mm -hmm. they're party affiliated i see okay so it's basically just depending on where you are yeah like you wouldn't expect yeah you wouldn't expect a school teacher in america to be a civil servant Right. Even though they really should be from a payroll yes. perspective and yes. all of that. But, you know, in a, in a system like this, that's what you have. Right. And I met this one guy that he was a science teacher and he, you just sometimes see a spark in someone's eye. Right. He was so excited to use the like 20 words of English that he knew <laughs> and be able to say, hello, this is my name. What's your name? And just to what have do you do? This is what I do. That's so funny, man. Oh my god, you're in my country. <laughs> <laughs> you're a white person. <laughs> um, just so excited to have that dynamic with you. Yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah, and, and like that kind of brutal honesty of just like the excitement of seeing the outside world and right. welcoming it, not right. fearing it, not having an agenda. Just there was no genu- fear. There was no fear from them at all. I never experienced fear or animosity from anyone. I only experienced curiosity. Like there, there were two instances that really were just kind of overwhelmingly surreal and strange. Okay. One time at the festival at the air show, because they're done flying for the day, they're kind of just like, yeah, walk around this open air market where most of the civilians were. There was like little things you could buy trinkets and there's, Lots more beer. Um, <laughs> Just so much beer everywhere. So, yeah. I really can't. So much I fucking really beer. I can't understate that. <laughs> that is amazing. 
<laughs> so yeah, that would not be the thing that I would I would most correlate with North Korea would be that all that the the abundance of beer. But yeah, I mean, that's, no. That's and every awesome. time it would happen, it would just kind of be like, well, we are here. We better just live this up. Just enjoy it. It's never going to happen. And, you know, Rich, Rich Cooper, the, one of the British guys, we just kind of say, well, yeah, why don't we have another? <laughs> <laughs> just enjoy it all um, while you can. No, but so I'm I'm walking alone at this point. Okay. And I I have my camera in my hand and I kind of stop for a second and just look around and realize I don't see anyone from my delegation, any of my minders, I- I- any anyone that I know, You're any other Westerner. There. And there's maybe a 10 foot circumference around me of nothing, of just just dirt, but then I look around and it's just thousands of north korean citizens that have just you know they're sitting around they're talking they're doing whatever doing but in that moment i realize fuck everyone's looking at me literally everyone here is looking at me everyone i am the only white person i am this like american asshole with a beard and an (laughs) undercut and and a four thousand dollar camera and everyone is looking at me but not not with anything other than just like they were just curious. What is this? Who is this? I haven't seen this before ever. Right. And that was like kind of humbling, but also I don't like that many eyes on me. <laughs> I don't think so anybody would. Yeah, that might that would after be after kind of taking that in for a second, I was just like I kind of just waved and continued on. But wow. uh another instance where it was a little more formal was we were I was I was pulled over like, oh, will you take a photo with me? Because, hey, a lot of them have like little point-and-shoot cameras or yeah. their own cell phone cameras and things. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll take a photo. And then I was stuck there for 20 minutes because it was just like, wait, I want a photo with the American. I want a photo with the American. And wow. eventually I had to just kind of go, I got to leave. I have to go I gotta, now, yeah. Because I would just stand there and people would come in and out. And I was just like, I don't know what to do. I am overwhelmed. Wow. This is strange. And one of the wow. Brits was over in the corner just, like, pointing and laughing at me. <laughs> like, this you is really fun to watch. I'm glad it's not me. <laughs> so going to North Korea opened up a few doors for you. I know recently, the last time we talked, you were in Nigeria, which we had to put a hold on our <laughs> interview here for that. Yep. And um, which I'm sure was fucking cool. I'm looking at this footage on the television right now, which is uh, unbelievable. I can't wait to see all of the shots there. All right, thank you. Um, but you were also in Iraq. You were in post-war Iraq. Yep. When did you go there? Like how soon after the war? I mean, was it like the Obama Trump transition where they were pulling people uh, out? No, what so was that, happening? That was that was 2018. Okay. Um, and so after after North Korea, um, out, outside of just having travel experience in general, um, this kind of put a chip on my shoulder or portfolio badge that <laughs> right. when weird shit comes up and I get a hold of it or I get in the mix, it's almost like a streamline of oh yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go. Send him. Yeah. Good. Cool. Yeah, Shan's um, the guy. And that, I would say, it gets very chaotic very quickly with a lot of this stuff because, uh, like, for example, I had six days notice for Nigeria. I remember. I yeah, remember. Getting, I, yeah. I, I woke up um, to, like, a tag on a listing post from, from a colleague of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and within within 30 minutes, I had a call with the producer. Within an hour, they were like, yeah, we're going. Here's the rate. Here's what the goal is. And we leave in six days. Wow. So within six days, I had to go to New York three times uh, to work out visas with the Nigerian embassy. 
and also figure out getting a whole bunch of immunizations for Africa, which I didn't have. Wow. Um, also, yellow fever virus, which uh, is hard to get because the American factory that made it burned down two years ago and they haven't rebuilt it. Oh, God. Weird thing. Um, so, like, <laughs> just, just chaos. I, just Iraq, madness, we had, yeah. uh, Iraq was the same thing as I woke up, uh, I think, hungover at, like, 11 in the morning on nice. Thursday. Because that... That's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. yeah why not? Um, <laughs> Just fuck it. Yeah. To, to like this message of like, hey, I have a producer trying to plan a trip to Iraq. And a you producer interested? for what was it? What was the actual producing? Like, what was it for? Okay. So Iraq uh, is twofold in that I will tell you the goal and the original in, the insight of like what it was and then what it actually was and what it turned into. Okay. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be election monitoring coverage. For the second Kurdish referendum elections for independence. Okay. Um, because we were mostly in Kurdish Iraq, which is Kurdistan, which if the world was a better place, it would be its own state. Okay. Um, the Kurdish people. Got it. Still Iraq, but, but also Kurdistan. Kurdistan. Got it. Um, so these elections were happening all over the country in Iraq, but in Kurdistan, it was very important because of their independence referendum where it was the people going... The, the year before they had voted, okay, we want to be independent. This year it was saying, okay, how are we going to do that? Right. Um, so we were going with a political think tank and consulting firm in D.C. called Six Point Strategies, run by just a lovely human being. Not going to say his name. Not going <laughs> not to do that. I don't want to get impressed. Um, I could say that the sarcasm was just dripping off of you, sir. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but to go create a video documentary of election monitoring alongside okay. several political consultants and journalists and political scientists. Okay. The group was originally supposed to be about 30 people. It then grew down to about eight, eight, nine people. And we had private mercenaries from the U S we had Kurdish Peshmerga security and we were supposed to be shipped around the country meeting with, politicians, government officials, delegates. Um, Basically just glad-handing, essentially, is what it was supposed to be, yes. in a way. Okay. Yes, and then actually covering the elections on Election Day. Right. That's what it was supposed to be. What it turned into was just an absolute shit show in <laughs> that, r really, right. the p political consulting firm in D.C. was kind of illegally acting as a foreign agent for... A Kurdish political party, Shazwar Abdul Wahid of the New Generation Party, who ran the only independent media station in Kurdistan, which is now not independent media because he's a politician now. Oh my God. But he hired this firm to consult for him to bring Americans over to basically be glorified meat shields. For his campaign up, leading up dude. to the election because he knew that none of his opponents would gun him down in the street if there were Americans around. Shut the fuck he up. He also knew that he could cover the fancy Americans there in their suits, in their everything, oh with God. their with their cameras, and that he could then go on his own news networks and say, hey, Trump sent a delegation of Americans oh, here geez. to endorse me for the campaign. 
put that on on his own news network and then he's and then he's good because no one's going to fact check that wow when in reality we we are there under the auspicion that oh we are here for this firm to do this this and this right and so it was basically it was just a big it was a big ruse so two days into this trip shit just hits the fan goes wild in that oh my god dude the consulting firm isn't getting paid by the politician he's not paying his security Everyone's revolting. Everyone's kind of going like, nah, what's up with this? Right. And we end up just hiring our own mercenaries, our own fixers in country and saying, okay, we're here. They got us here. We wow. we are now in Iraq. We are now in Kurdistan. What can we do to really tell our own story and make something wild here? Because we still had the connections to meet with the politicians, to meet with everyone, oh, to do whatever we awesome. wanted to do. So, so now you're so literally we, making a dollar out of yeah. 15 cents. You are creating your own story. Yes. That's awesome. So us on the media crew and then a few of the other journalists that said, yeah, we're going to roll with you. We just went rogue <laughs> and we did our own thing. And that led us to meet with the leaders of every major political party, multiple Kurdish generals um, with genocide survivors in Halabja um and to the actual front lines where we were 50 meters from isis like intervie- interviewing generals with like a gopro in my pocket ducking behind sandbags and then rushing out of the city back before like night fell so you said um, 50 meters from isis 50 meters from isis just as it sort of to quantify that what could you picture like give somebody an example of like just how close that would be um what is a football field that's 100 meters it's 100 about 100 meters right 100 yards? 100 yards, which is 300 feet, which is... You would know better than I would. Oh, God. <laughs> so we're talking about maybe half of a football field, theoretically Ish. speaking. Somewhere in that yeah. range, right? They had been exchanging fire throughout the day. And wow. They were they were right over there. This this was near Mazol. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So wow. The, and there was also situations where we ended up at, not what you would call the front lines, but at holding posts where... You've got three different aggressors right. basically holding their own checkpoints where we have we're with the Kurdish military. We're at their checkpoint to the left. There is the Shia militia, which is funded right. by Iran. Mm-hmm. And then to the right is the Iraqi army funded by Baghdad. OK. And you would think the Kurds and the Iraqi army would like be pretty chill but really they're not. If they if they can get an excuse to get away with shooting at each other, they, they will. They will. Essentially, it's the Kurdish. I know there's there's a still kind of a this this issue between the 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 Shiites and the Sunnis and the Kurds, right? Yep. Is that correct? Okay. So there's just basically all kinds of crazy shit happening all at once. Mm-hmm. And you're there, you've now found out it's a ruse while you're there. It's a it's a it's basically it's a it's a charade. Yes. Fuck. <laughs> Holy shit. You know, yeah, I mean, that's, it, that it is, was, that is awful. The, it was awful, but like, it was kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, when you went rogue, I mean, I imagine that would yeah, be way every, cooler. Every, yeah. Every minute in like, it, people say you'd never forget your first time in the Middle East. And that could not have rung truer for me, at least. And the people that I was with, um, in that just every moment was kind of chaos in its own way whether we were trying to get through a checkpoint or paying a bar tab like everything just kind of was all over the place right but it was constant problem solving and just 
you are traveling around in a semi-armored convoy with a bunch of crazy Kurdish Peshmerga dudes with just AKs out with like a lack of gun safety like you've never seen in your life. Wow. Um, wow. I'd be terrified. And you're just, I remember when they, when they picked us up from the airport the first time. Okay. We barely fit in the convoy and my colleague Brandon Eastwood and I were just like, oh, there's only, there's room in the trunk. Okay, we'll sit in the trunk because then we could just keep the door open and kind of like film at the back. But we fly in at four in the morning and we have to drive three hours to Salamania from Irbul, the capital. And we just start getting in the trunk and they just go, oh yeah, watch out for the RPGs there. Don't sit on the RPGs. Uh, and we're like, oh, yeah, I guess we won't sit on the RPGs. Yeah, we'll sit I'm, over here. here. I'm going to just sit wherever the fuck I can. Yeah. Yeah. And it just Jesus. became a normal occurrence of riding around in a trunk with a bunch of live RPGs rolling around in it as well oh, um, while they're just blowing through traffic. So you really you really are like almost like the stuntman photographer. Like you are just <laughs> the like the man who just goes into the shit and just does it. Sometimes it, it ends up that way, but like I, I keep ending up in these situations that push me past what I thought my comfort zone was. Right. So like when, when I heard about the Nigeria trip, I was like, oh, this will be a cakewalk. What could go wrong? <laughs> um, Famous last words. Always. Yeah. No, Jesus. And not, not, that, not that anything of that level happened over there. But, but your um, experiences have been like, okay, well, I go to North Korea and that's crazy. And then I'm in Iraq and it's a shit show. So now you're like, oh, Nigeria, this is going to be fucking the It's worst on the thing yellow ever. flag yeah. list, not right. the red flag list with the State <laughs> Department. So it's way What's easier. It's fine. It's so fine. Yeah. yeah. So when I guess my question about Iraq would be, based on your experience with North Korea, meeting, I mean, obviously interacting with some, not just their military, but probably some civilians as well. So based on your experience with North Korea and going there and then being in Iraq, what would you say is, and then meeting with the, you know, the civilians and, and, and the military, what do you think the biggest misconception is in America about what's happening in Iraq right now? So I think the biggest misconception is, one, it's all sand. <laughs> um, people think the Middle East and they think, oh, barren desert, horrible land with dictators and oil. Um, <laughs> Naturally, or, or, yeah. or that it is just a chaotic land that has been bombed out to death by the U.S. And that's not to say that some of it has been. And sure. That, uh, I don't think um, the the Iraq war is no longer very popular here in the U.S. as right. it shouldn't be. Uh, but you will find interesting reactions over there, which I'll get to. Okay. Um, people think it's, it's a destroyed war-torn region, and some of it is, but that is not the majority at this point. Another misconception would be that all of it is Iraq. A lot of people don't even know that the Kurdish people, a, a ethnographic group, a, they are a people, um, that they have a huge stake in the country, in the land, and they are their own culture that is separate from the Arab world that that is Iraq, that is part of Iraq. Um, so we go there, and I found thriving life like I've not really seen in other other places. Interesting. I've, I've been to plenty of places in the U.S. that were doing worse. Um, but most of all, I saw just this immense amount of hope and friendly camaraderie the the most welcoming people i've ever met in my life i met in kurdistan in iraq wow um they 
again, like North Korea, they're very prideful. You, you, you see this in places that, you know, get looked down on the world is that they they see their own country day to day and they love it. They're, they are prideful. They are giving people. Mm-hmm. Um, but we went there. It was mountainous. It was green. It was beautiful. There were amenities. There were things to use. I, I had worse cell phone service in Nigeria than I did in Iraq. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Um, you know, That's bless, bless WhatsApp for being able to just squeeze whatever it needs out to get a message just through. Just pulling everything in a fuck it can. Yeah, you know, I can't send a text message, but I sure can send a, send a, WhatsApp. a WhatsApp message. That's um, funny. So I, I, I found found Selamania, the heart city of Kurdistan, to remind me a lot of Philadelphia. Interesting. In that there's, it's not actually lawless, but, you know, you can get away with a lot of shit in Philly. And I've always liked that about yeah. here because I'm not very pro-establishment. And it's just You're nice to my kind of like not worry about certain things. Like you could go down to D.C. and I'm like, cool, I've got a speed camera every 10 blocks. Yeah. And like I'm afraid of what to say around here. Um, but Philly, it's like we, we play in the trash a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. in Salamanca, in it was kind of just like. Yeah, you know, we have freedom in a different sense than what Americans might interpret freedom. Right. Like right. We aren't worried about the same type of is my paperwork filed correctly? Am I like a slave to the bank? Am I worried about running the red light? Is like like what is what is going on here? You you live, you live for your family, for your freedoms that you have and you you just live in the world. And I, I think that was really beautiful what I saw over there and the people that I met. And I would go back there in a heartbeat. So your book is called Behind the Veil, which is basically just the photographic exploration, your shots yes. from the North Korean air show. Tell me a little bit more about the book and where can people find the book? So the book is basically a chronicle of my entire journey there. Because while I was there to cover the air show... Like you were saying, you know, you don't know what you're about to experience in this land. And so it was hard to ever shut that off. I I, I shot over 9,000 images wow. in those three and a half, four days. How many memory cards did you go through? Oh, I don't even know. I <laughs> do not even remember. Could not tell you. Holy um, shit. But that is a staggering number, man. 9,000. But I guess, I mean, yeah, when you're, uh, I, I would have done the exact same thing. I yeah, mean, and, and I think that's kind of why it's taken this long to to get to releasing the book, you know, with this being shot in 2016 is I don't know how many times I've gone through that entire stack of 9,000 again and again saying like, what have I missed? What, what do I want to curate this down to? And, um, while I was there to cover the air show, I feel like I saw so much more of that, whether it was what it was like in the hotels, the grounds, the buses to and from, things I saw in the countryside, things I saw while flying in the air. Um, So I feel like I I wanted to tell the story of being there and seeing all of this and seeing little glimpses of the air show that weren't necessarily, yeah, look, here's the great photo of the aircraft, you know, because a lot of the people I was with were pure aviation journalists, and right. they were like, "Oh my god, I've never seen this plane fly." I I'm shoot shooting that. it right now, right. and that's what they're there for. And I was there for that as well. But my story was like the little glimpses into that air show of what was different, what were the pilots doing, what mm-hmm. was, 
the interior of this dilapidated plane like um little things so i think the book tells that story um i i've i've worked with a close friend and colleague of mine nicole schwartz to basically curate and and sequence it and really tell a story and i'm really excited for people to see it i teach at drexel university now as well in the photo department and i work very closely with a lot of their other departments shooting media for them and i've gotten some really close relationships with the people in the alumni office that when they heard I was producing this book and had done this content, they're like, we need to do a gallery of this. We need to make this happen. Um, so we're hoping to time up the the book launch by the end of the year with a gallery at the Paul Peck Alumni Center and really put this out into the world um, because it, I, I, I want to share what I have with people. And while I've dropped little, little bits out on social media or certain things, or we had a, um, you know, about, about six months after I returned, I had a gallery here at my own space, Color Space Labs. That's which is where, actually where we are on location right now today in beautiful scenic Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I had a curated small selection of images of my absolute favorites. And it was just amazing to see people's reaction to that work and see their shock at things that I had learned over there of, wow, it's not as cold and bleak and oppressive as we thought. Right. Uh, There is some humanizing things here. It is very colorful. And I think the title behind the Vila release speaks to kind of tearing away that, um, that pre-constructed Western narrative that doesn't help the people of North Korea. You know, you can have whatever stance you want on the regime, but they are human people and they are amazing and they are proud and I want to see the country do good so that they can do good and they can do better, you know, and Mm. I hope that my work can be a little insight into that and yeah, we'll see where that goes, I guess. So if you want more information on Chan's work, you can go to his website, which is uh, saronephoto.com, which is C-E-R-R-O-N-E yeah. photo.com, <laughs> I practice. Um, and that's also his Instagram handle, which is at saronephoto. Uh, he'll have more information about the book, where you can pick it up. Uh, you should also, when you're in Philadelphia, come down and check out Color Space Labs, because this place is fucking cool, man. Tell me a little bit more about this place, because I, it's, I mean, it's a big studio. It's a big warehouse right here in Philly. Yes, it is. So Color Space Labs here in Fishtown slash Old Kensington. We're kind of right on that split. Right in the border Um, there, yeah. So my full day-to-day, which allows me to go on trips like this and do all that, is I run a full-service photo-video production company. And out of that, we started to, you know, over the last really six, seven years we've been in business doing this full-time, um... We've needed more space. We need more resources. And so we've kind of grown into having this office here where we said, hey, this is something we should offer to the public. This mm. is something we should offer to the community. Because um, I remember when I got out of school or when a lot of colleagues of mine got out of school that like, you know, you don't have access to equipment, resources or anything at an affordable rate. And so we said, well, we have all of this here because we need it. Why can't we help other people get access to that that maybe can't afford larger full studios and things like that. So we've grown this space, this exact location. We've been in three years, but um, we are an art gallery. We are an event space. We are a photo video studio. Um, We have about 36 feet of gallery wall. 
2,500 square feet of usable shooting space and um, large format printing, a lot, lot of stuff. But uh, it's, so it's, cool, our, it's our day-to-day here, and um, it, it always amazes me the people that come in here to rent us out or put on their own events or album releases or things and just see the creativity that's been able to spark inside of here, and that's, that's awesome. what makes us really happy. That's what it's all about, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's literally what it is. Where can we find out more information about Color Space Labs for people who are listening? Where can they find out more? Colorspacelabs.com. Easy or enough. at Color Space Labs <laughs> on Instagram. You got that market nailed, my friend. Well it, done, you sir. You know, really nice and simple, uh, <laughs> but you, 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 would, um, you would be amazed, maybe not, but the amount of people that come in here is like, oh, is this Color Labs? Oh, my God. Is this Space Labs? It literally says it on the fucking garage door. No, Color it's space amazing labs. how often co- like space gets left out. Like Isn't you would something? think you could just shorten it to, oh hey, it's Color Space. Right. No, is this Color Lab? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So much for joining us here on our show today. This has been absolutely fucking fascinating. I've wanted to tell this story <laughs> since the time I met you uh, several months ago here at Color Space Labs. Don't forget to check him out on Instagram. Check out his website as well. I'm going to link everything inside of that uh, blurb that you see there when you pull up our show. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks for our next interview uh, or our next segment, and the rest of the gang will be here to join us. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Man. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening. Foundation Radio is recorded and produced by Adam Barnard and Sam Kreps. Our intro and outro is produced by Dumb Ugly. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Foundation underscore radio. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Foundation Radio Pod. This has been a Foundation Radio production.